microservice architecture has become a ubiquitous design choice. Application developers typically have neither the training nor the interest in implementing low-level security features into their software, microservice or otherwise. For this and many other reasons, the notion of a service mesh has been introduced to provide a framework for service-to-service communication. Today's guest is Zach Butcher. While working at Google, he was one of the earliest engineers contributing to Istio, an open-platform independent service mesh that provides traffic management, policy enforcement, and telemetry collection. Today, he's the head of product at Tetrate, working on products like the Tetrate Service Bridge and Tetrate Cloud. We discuss the need and implementation of a service mesh and how companies are leveraging tools like their service bridge. Zach, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Or maybe I should say welcome back, actually. Yeah, yep, yep. We were just talking about uh, it's been a, a couple years, I think, but uh, it's good to be back. Can you remind listeners a little bit about your technical background? Yeah, so I'm Zach Butcher. I'm one of the founding engineers here at Tetrate, which is a company you know that's all kind of all about taking the service mesh to enterprise. Before that, I had in there at Tetrate, I, I work as our head of uh, product day to day now. So uh, kind of bridging engineering and customers. But uh, previously, I've been a software engineer my, my entire career. So before being founding engineer here at Tetrate, I also worked in Google Cloud. The last project in Google that I worked on was Istio. I was one of the earliest projects, one of the earliest members of the project there at Google on Istio. And before that, I worked across a whole bunch of different teams in GCP. So the central resource hierarchy, if you've ever gone and made a project in Google Cloud, project creation was my baby for, for a while. I worked on their identity and access management system, the the service management system, and eventually some of the stuff that, that became kind of the, the service mesh inside of Google as we developed and rolled out that architecture. Um, and then that same team that I kind of worked with then pivoted and said, hey, let's go in and solve this kind of painful networking problem in Kubernetes. And that became then the Istio project, which really has taken on kind of life of its own, right? And, you know, at Tetrate, one of the things we're excited about is kind of making it bigger than, than just Kubernetes and kind of bringing the service mesh everywhere, including back into legacy and into to non-Kubernetes workloads. So it's pretty cool to kind of see it start from kind of that angle and, and grow. Could you talk about any lessons learned in building Istio that were informative when starting Tetrate? Oh, gosh, so many. Let me take one that's maybe more general than just Istio, which is, you know, listen to your customers. I think this is something that, you know, if you look at the different cloud providers, the different hyperscalers, they do this to to varying degrees, right? I think Amazon is well known for their kind of ruthless customer focus. Google, less so. Right. And so one of the the big things that we did as we were kind of before starting Tetrate was go around and, and try and drive a lot of the initial adoption of Istio by, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of different companies. And we heard pretty consistently a, a, a common set of problems that Istio wasn't addressing, but that they wanted it to address. In particular, you know, how do I start to bridge legacy infrastructure and modern infrastructure? Right. How do I affect this move into Kubernetes and cloud? And, you know, we heard that from a ton of different customers, and we couldn't really convince the Google leadership to, to follow that. You know, it's a very engineering-driven organization. They don't do a very good job of listening to customers. And so eventually, Varun, who's the product manager for Istio, 
who's our CEO now at, at Tetrate, left, and, and I joined him shortly thereafter to kind of solve these problems that we had heard customers describe. And so that is maybe the number one lesson I would give, and it's maybe not technical, but that is, you know, listen to the people that are that are trying to use your software, listen to the people that are using it, to listen and hear how they talk about the problems, hear, you know, what are the problems that they think it's solving, because they may be different than the set of problems that you think it's it's solving and really key in and listen to them and they're going to guide you in the right way. So that's one of the big things. There's so many, you know, there's a huge litany of, of different kind of technical things that I learned as well. You know, one of the, just to touch on one or two of those and, and you can stop me at any time. I worked on some of the API design pieces in Istio as well, some of the networking APIs, uh, which are maybe notoriously hard to use because it's a, it's a very flexible system. There's a, it's, it's almost like Legos to put together and, and build the, the Istio configuration and the, the Envoy configuration underneath. And, you know, there were a ton of different API design lessons that I learned in the process of, of kind of helping build those with some of the other senior engineers on the project. You know, I got to really sit down and learn from uh, folks like Louis Ryan, for example, who's, who's the lead engineer on the project and also worked directly on that API design. The, maybe the single biggest thing that I learned from an API design perspective is this idea of unit of edit versus unit of ownership. And this one is a very nice technical one, and it applies to any API, not just a configuration API, not just you know an API hosted over over the network. The same is true for you know APIs we expose in SDKs or libraries, right? This idea of what am I going to make a user change? And who are the different users that may want to change the different pieces? And it's really important to align the two so that the concerns of one user, for example, an application developer, can be addressed in a very small set of configuration, ideally like one document. And maybe not one because it gets too big. That's a design trade-off, right? But then we have maybe security concerns. And it's pretty common in an organization that we're going to want to set security controls centrally, but we're going to want to let individual developers go and and change traffic-oriented things at their own rate, as long as they're conforming to our security standards. And so one of the the simple examples that we made in Istio's APIs, where we got this wrong, where we mixed one unit of edit, the destination rule object, with two different owners, the application developer and the security team, because that destination rule controlled how traffic got to you, what is the load balancing strategy? What are the subsets? Is there a new version of the service that I want to canary? That kind of stuff. But it also controlled, do you use TLS to talk to the service or not? Often, the security team is going to want to mandate, you have to use TLS everywhere. You have to use mutual TLS everywhere. That's one of the big reasons to adopt the service mesh. And so you had this problem where teams want to allow application developers to edit their destination rule object so that they can, for example, create a new version of a service and canary traffic to that new version. But they don't want to let them edit the TLS parts. And unfortunately, because they're in the same document, that that destination rule API object, you can't really very easily control changing one and not the other. And so this, and, and this has subsequently been fixed with the authentication policy and, and some other pieces in Istio. So we split this out now so that it's been addressed. But that was a key idea that I've taken away and that I use all the time in API design, this idea of unit of edit versus unit of ownership. I like that. I think I'd like to take that as a takeaway as well. Um, it makes total intuitive sense, but I also feel like I'm going to make that mistake a few more times before I learn the lesson. Always, always. 
And it's a hard design trade-off, right? Because you have to really think about what is the thing and you have to think about it from multiple angles and from a perspective of multiple users, right? Is there anything besides experience that can help a person figure out good ways to do that? Yeah, there's. it is challenging. Certainly experience is, like, is a big piece of it. The other thing is to look at, is to understand the, the concerns of the different users of your system. And, and certainly that's going to come from experience. Uh, it can also just come from talking to them, right? The experience gives you maybe an intuition, but, but it's not going to be talking. And so if you go and, and sit down and, and talk to the, an organization trying to adopt, you know, service mesh in this example, you know, we heard very clearly, hey, there's actually, you know, maybe three or four different personas that are at play here. You know, there's a central platform team. There's an application development team. There's a central uh, networking team, usually, uh, maybe a load balancing team. There's a, a security team. And they're all kind of grappling with this new technology that, that's right in the middle. And we have to figure out, you know, how they, how they get to, to play together, how they, they actually start to interact. And that's, that's really cool. But it also means that there's, again, a whole lot of concerns that, that, that float around. And so there's a few different angles to consider it. So that's, you know, so my advice would be, you know, beyond just experience, talk to the users and uncover who are the personas that are going to be interacting with the system. What do they care about? Does this thing that I'm building line up for them? Do we need a different kind of a different view of the world for, for that persona? Because they care about things differently. And that's pretty common that you'll, you'll need that. That was another kind of, actually, that's, uh, I'll touch on that. That's another deep technical takeaway that we learned building the Google Cloud resource hierarchy, that organizations, folders, and projects is we built the resource hierarchy and I keep saying the resource hierarchy because uh, we immediately turned around and figured out that we actually needed multiple because for example, that organizational structure doesn't necessarily work if I want to do a billing rollup. The, the billing people in an organization maybe have a slightly different view than how I want to manage user access, developer access to cloud resources. Those are two different views. Uh, and so that's one other kind of interesting you know, and so we learned in GCP, hey, there's there needs to be different ways to slice it. Uh, that's still an active and, and ongoing set of work across those teams, right? But that's another kind of key idea. And so it all ties into who's using the system, what are the ways that they need to look at the system? Because there's an underlying set of things that the system describes. And then there's going to be a bunch of different users that come along and want to use those things, right? And they're going to care about different views. Whether that's the service mesh and service mesh functionality, and those things are stuff like, encryption and transit and traffic control and load balancing, or whether, you know, it's higher level stuff like, you know, how we model resources in, in, in a cloud provider uh, in the in the different personas that are at stake there. Same, same idea. Well, I'd love to zoom in on service mesh, but maybe starting from the high level, what is a service mesh and why do technology groups adopt it? Yeah. So the service mesh itself is really kind of two pieces coming together. It's the idea that we want to pull a bunch of networking concerns out of the application and we pull them out of the application by putting a proxy, a network, what we would think of as a traditional network proxy, actually right beside the application deployed next to it. And we're going to deploy one next to every instance of the application. We call that a sidecar. And that sidecar proxy, uh, and I'll refer to it as a sidecar, the, the particular implementation that Istio uses and that is most widely used across service meshes is Envoy. So if you hear me talk about Envoy, think Sidecar Proxy, you'll hear me say Sidecar, you'll hear me say Proxy. Uh, I will try and be consistent. So we have this Sidecar beside every application. It's intercepting all the network traffic in and out. And really importantly, it can actually understand it at the application layer at L7. So for example, we can look at an HTTP request 
not just a TCP connection. But we can do TCP too if we don't understand the protocol. So with that proxy that's intercepting all the traffic in and out of the application, that gives us a control point that we can do all kinds of different stuff now with the traffic. So for example, we can produce a consistent set of metrics and logs for all of the traffic because we have this one consistent piece of software, this proxy, that's sitting there intercepting it all. So we can say, hey, look, every service now automatically has a consistent set of metrics that describe the rate of requests, the rate of errors, and the latency, the kind of key operational metrics. We can start to enforce traffic control. We can start to do traffic routing. This gives us, because we have a proxy there, we can do client-side load balancing. And that gives us a whole bunch of tools and techniques for building a reliable set of applications against modern distributed failure. And then finally, it gives us a, a policy enforcement point to be able to do security. This is something we'll talk about in a little bit later in the call with NIST and some of the things there. But this idea of Envoy as a policy enforcement point is key. And when I talk about policy, you know, in this context, we can think of security policy. So, hey, I want to look at that HTTP request that's coming through and I want to apply WAF, you know, web application firewall rules. I want to just apply basic policy to the header. I want to do authentication and authorization. You can do all of those pieces as well. So we have this sidecar proxy that's beside every application that gives us those capabilities around security, traffic management, and observability. Then we need to drive those sidecars. We need to program them. We need to configure them uh, to be able to, to affect the policy we want to, so that a developer can say, do a, sh a traffic shift, right? So a security team can say, make sure there's encryption in transit. And that piece that configures those proxies at runtime is called the control plane. And so that when you see different service mesh implementations, a lot of them use Envoy for the proxy, what we would call that data plane. Then the control plane is what's responsible for programming a fleet of envoys and really kind of turning it from an individual proxy into a mesh, if you will. Uh, and some of the key ideas there are, you know, a central control point, the ability to change rapidly, you know, at the speed of configuration update. I don't need to go and redeploy my application to it to affect a change. Uh, finally, one of the other key ideas that a service mesh gives you is a notion of identity. So we want to give an identity to every application so that then at runtime, we can apply policy based on that application's identity. So I mentioned that we can do encryption in transit with the service mesh. One of the key things that we do is, is assign a runtime identity to every service, and we encode that in a set of certificates that the, that the, the service mesh distributes to those sidecar proxies. And when they communicate with other services, they can present that certificate. We can get an authenticated uh, identity out of that. And so we can do service-to-service -service access control as well, kind of with that identity. And that's a capability, you know, the service mesh brings that that control plane brings on top of the basic primitive of encryption and transit that Envoy provides. So again, just to summarize real quick, service mesh is these two moving pieces, the data plane and the control plane. For Istio and for most service meshes, that that data plane is Envoy, the, the proxy, CNCF project. Uh, you can check it out at envoyproxy.io. And then for Istio as a control plane is the one that is the particular service mesh control plane that I worked on that is, you know, maybe the most widely adopted today uh, in terms of, of uh, production footprint. Well, I'm wondering if we can imagine a small team, they've got a Kubernetes cluster going, maybe 
nine or 10 services they've stood up that all kind of orchestrate together. But they've done everything through load balancers and config files, environment variables. They didn't know about service mesh, and now they think it's time to adopt it. What are the steps to get something like that going? Yeah, so this is something we see very regularly, right? And and so the idea is what you're going to want to do is uh, first identify the specific pain point that you want to use the service mesh to address, right? So, you know, it's really often that I see folks that are kind of, hey, this is a cool idea. We know we want to sprinkle some service mesh in here. And I go, great, what are you going to do with it? What's the value that it provides you? And if you can't articulate a clear answer to that question, you're probably not going to have a successful service mesh adoption. Um, and that's based on the, the, you know, the experience I've seen firsthand talking with folks, right? The folks that are able to successfully adopt a service mesh in an organization, a large organization is small organization, doesn't matter. They have a very clear and specific set of value that they want out of it. Right. So what is it in the small team? You know, what is it that they need to get out? Maybe it's encryption and transit. Uh, maybe it's it's consistent operational metrics, that kind of and maybe it's the, the reliability and resiliency. So uh, assuming that they've met that minimum bar, that they've identified what is the value point that we need from the service mesh, then that should guide you into as you start to do an implementation, what is the first set of, of things that you're gonna implement, right? Because the service mesh provides a huge, it, it's a really featureful thing. There's a ton of stuff there. And the hard part is getting it into your system and using that initial set of features. And then the incremental complexity and the incremental difficulty of adding new features or using new feature, you know, using features that exist that you haven't used yet is very small relative to the cost of actually just getting the system in. So identify that first use case, only do that first use case. Then mechanically, when it comes to the actual migration, the way that it works is go into your lower you know, environments, your test uh, and development environments, identify an initial set of applications that are maybe your happy path that you know communicate primarily over HTTP REST, for example, and start to roll out the sidecar service by service there. You know, so you said in your example, maybe they have 10 services. Uh, you know, far, you know, probably in that kind of a world, you know, maybe six or eight of them are are happy HTTP services, the service mesh just fits in immediately because we just put in the sidecar proxy and it doesn't break anything. Then, you know, what in it tends to follow an 80-20 principle, right? And so then that 20% of applications, there tends to be a little bit more work. There might be an incantation or two that we need as far as, you know, how the service mesh delivers traffic to the application and how it intercepts the application's traffic to make it totally work. And that might require a little bit of massaging, and that, that tends to be kind of a one-time activity for that application. It might be, you know, in your world, if you use a common set of libraries, it might be, hey, get the incantation right for how we configure the set of libraries to talk to the, to the network, and that'll be kind of a one-time thing for our company. And so then we roll it out application by application in these lower environments. We see the proof points in those lower environments of the specific thing that we wanted to get value from, right? Encryption and transit you know, traffic control, durability, whatever it was. And we also use that, you know, to gain confidence in the operation of the system. And once it's been there and deployed, then we can start to promote it up into production as well, right? But, you know, it's a gradual, it's an incremental process. I would not try and do it as a big bang, just turn on the sidecar everywhere because you're going to have breakages. You need to do it service by service. There's a lot of tools to now roll out 
you know, Istio specifically has built a lot here to roll out the service mesh incrementally to, to parts of the application and not be disruptive in the world where you have parts in the service mesh and parts not. As I start prioritizing my services, it's possible I could encounter a lot of diversity. Maybe the machine learning team has a Python service, the front end is some express server, there's some serverless involved. Do I have to go into each and figure out how to do Istio and Python and then Node.js and so on and so forth? Fortunately, no. So that, you know, that's been a problem historically. You know, the service mesh and the set of capabilities it provides is not novel, right? For any distributed system, you've needed uh, traffic management, you've needed, you know, networking and, and things like that. And so historically, it has been done, for example, in libraries. Uh, and so you would have framework code for your Python. Uh, in framework code for your Java applications or your C sharp applications, right? And there'd be a lot of work to make sure that they lined up. And there, it was pretty often that we would see, uh, you know, in Google that we would see outages relating to until we built very robust testing that was expensive to maintain. You would see outages relating to kind of the the matrix of different versions of the libraries across different uh, languages deployed and communicating. And so that is one of the key ideas of the service mesh, is that because we're doing it in a sidecar proxy, not inside of the application itself, we're really interacting at the layer of the network. And so as long as that Python or that Node.js or that Ruby or that Java application is communicating with external dependencies over the network, and ideally doing it with HTTP, although not only HTTP, then the service mesh will be able to plug in and, and work, right? And we're not going to necessarily need to change the application. The only thing we may need to change is some of the service mesh configuration itself, you know, kind of outside of the application code. But again, you know, I want to stress that that usually follows an 80-20 rule where we see, you know, 80% of the time, it tends to just work in an organization, regardless of the set of frameworks uh, or languages. When companies come to Tetrate for help getting this started, what are their typical motivations? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things we opened up with is the idea that we work very closely with NIST. One of the areas that we work very closely is around security, right? And so what we've seen is, I describe, you know, like I described, the service mesh is still a relatively expensive thing to, to adopt. Right, especially within a large organization, and, and Tetrate tends to work with with very large organizations, usually about Fortune 2000 or so. It's a hard effort to do this adoption, and therefore the pain that it addresses when a customer comes in needs to be large, right? And I, just like you know, I mentioned, you know, you need to have one specific pain point in mind. That's true whether you're talking to Tetrate. That's true whether you're doing it yourself. And so for us, where we've seen the, the pain that is sufficient to really drive adoption in the largest organizations is around security and compliance. This is one of the reasons that we work very closely with NIST on not just service mesh security, but actually the set of papers that I write with NIST, the SB 800-204 series, is the authoritative set of recommendations for microservice security from the federal government, right? Not service mesh security, but microservice security. And so that's the primary use case that we see folks come in with, you know, mechanically or, or tactically, maybe I should say that manifests as I need encryption and transit everywhere as maybe a first and specific tactical item. But immediately after we deliver encryption and transit everywhere, then it becomes great. Now I want to do access control with that. I want to start to take advantage of the metrics everywhere to understand how traffic is flowing and where. And then I want to start to put it into developer hands so that they can do things like canaries and build more resilient fault tolerant systems. But for us, you know, it usually starts with security. 
And then once it's in, it's very cheap to start to give all the other capabilities to the rest of the organization. How did the collaboration with NIST get started? Yeah, so that one uh, turned out uh, almost a, a little bit by by chance, uh, as these things kind of do pretty often. So JJ, our CTO here at Tetrate, had been working on access control a little bit. You know, I worked in the access control space as well. I mentioned just you know a little bit inside of GCP, and David, Dr. Ferriolo, who leads the team over at NIST, uh, the secure application and computing team, has been working on access control his entire career. That's really what he loves. Uh, it's, it's his favorite thing. He'll, he, he's great if you ever sit down and talk with him. He'll talk your ear off about access control. And he happened to be in San Francisco literally the week that we actually started Tetrate. And we were in some offices on Spear Street there on the Embarcadero in Tetrate, or, or sorry, in, in San Francisco there that first week. He happened to be in San Francisco as well, and we had just read a set of papers that he had written a year earlier. Uh, he had just written them at the end of 2017. This was early 2018. And he was actually in San Francisco receiving the IEEE Lifetime Achievement Award for the standardization of RBAC. So, you know, everybody's using Kubernetes RBAC. Everybody's using some flavor of RBAC in cloud uh, permissions, for example. He's actually the guy that, that standardized RBAC and wrote the RBAC spec. Uh, years and years ago. And so he's worked in access control his entire career. We read these papers, we saw he was in town, uh, and we actually just sent an email over and said, hey, look, you know, you're, we know you're here. We're actually a few blocks over from you. We would love to sit down and, and you know, have a drink, talk about some of the access control work you're doing, because we think that it, it might be interesting, because we have this whole service mesh thing. And we have that whole idea of Envoy as the policy enforcement point. Right. And so he was intrigued. And so we sat down and, and we started to talk, you know, we thought, hey, we can have a really useful collaboration together. And so we actually started to collaborate around access control systems. And we actually still have an active collaborative research agreement with NIST around a set of technologies called Next Generation Access Control System, which David and, and his team have been developing for, for a couple of years now. Uh, and that's actually in our product, which, which sits on top of service mesh. We can get into that in, in just a second. But that's how we started working with NIST, is this collaborative research around access control, which was an area that JJ had been interested in, uh, that, that I was interested in as well, um, and that we knew could be important for the surface mesh. And then uh, because that research was going well together, we were working well together and, and enjoying it. When it came time, you know, there's been a clear need in government for better security standards for modern service deployments. David and his team were the group that are, are responsible for producing those. And so they asked if we would work together then to help author those, right? Because we wanted these to be really practical and hands-on compared to a lot of the, the other guidance that, that comes out, right? And so, you know, because we were kind of in the field helping some, you know, very large organizations, including folks, you know, within the DOD, do this whole service mesh secure you know, zero trust, this idea of the zero trust architecture, the service mesh is a, is a piece of the runtime for that. We were helping them, you know, we were helping execute on that in practice. And so the folks over at NIST said, hey, great, that's awesome. You know, why don't we work together to write these standards so that they're based in that, in that practice? Uh, and so that's how then the collaboration on the, the SPs uh, started. And then that's even grown further. So one of the things I'll, I'll plug here is that we actually have done two annual conferences with NIST so far. And we have our third one coming up and that Tetrate exclusively co-hosts them. When it's safe to travel, we actually do those in camp on the in the NIST campus in uh, Gaithersburg. 
But this year it'll be totally virtual in February. Uh, there will be a it'll be a zero trust and cloud conference that that NIST will be putting on. So do look out for that. Very cool. I'm wondering if we can expand on the zero trust architecture. What are some of the core principles? Yeah. So you know, there's a whole lot of fud in the space around zero trust today. It seems like everywhere I turn around, everybody's claiming to, to have zero trust, right? So when I like to explain it, I, I try and break it down into four key pieces. The first one being the pre-runtime activities. So what does it take to produce an artifact that can run in your production system, right? What are the code review processes? What are the CI/CD processes? What are the image scanning, the vulnerability scanning? What are the, the image signing? All of those things, the, the pipelines and processes that it takes to produce an artifact that can get run in production. And there's a whole lot of stuff there, and there's a whole lot of players there in that space, you know, doing things like GitOps, uh, you know, doing things like uh, software supply chain, software security, uh, software bill of work, those kinds of things, right? So that's the first pillar. Then the second pillar is the runtime security. And this is the piece where, you know, encryption and transit is a, is a key piece of this. But there's other stuff as well. You need to be authenticating and authorizing the services that are communicating. You need to be authenticating and authorizing the users of the services that are communicating. So there's a, a few different moving pieces in this runtime security bucket. This is where the service mesh really provides a whole lot of tools to be able to provide encryption and transit, to be able to provide a service level identity that you can be authenticated and authorized, and to provide a point to do consistent uh, authentication and authorization of the end user credentials as well. So that's the, the runtime security element. And the, this is the piece you know, that the, the lens to think through or the question to ask yourself is, if I took this workload, this application, and I exposed it to the internet, what would I have to change? That's the key motivation for the runtime piece. And if the answer is nothing, then then you've achieved a zero trust boundary, right? Or a zero trust uh, run, you know, system. The third pillar, so we have the pre-runtime, we have the runtime controls, then we need consistent and continuous visibility into the system. We need to be able to continuously assert that the system is in a healthy state and that it is enforcing the policies that we want, right? We don't want to just configure policy one time and pray. We want to configure policy, enact it at runtime, and then observe that it's being enforced continuously every single request, every single network interaction through the system. And the service mesh provides the raw data to be able to view and build that understanding that there is, in fact, you know, that continuous assertion that the system is is in the correct state. So that's the third pillar for zero trust. And then finally, the fourth pillar is the administration of all of that stuff. So we have those three, you know, how do we get pre-run, you know, how do we get runtime artifacts? How do we deploy and control them at runtime? And then how do we assert that the system is doing what we wanted to? We then need to manage all of that. Who can change it? What are the changes that are made? What is the audit record of those changes? All of that stuff so that we can then prove to auditors, prove to ourselves that the system is in fact secure. So those are the four pillars that I think of when it really comes to zero trust and what it means. And so the service mesh you know, doesn't really play at all in the pre-runtime pillar. Uh, Tetrate doesn't really play at all in the pre-runtime pillar, right? But the service mesh has a huge piece that it can provide in the runtime 
and the continuous assertion of the system in those two pillars. And that's exactly where Tetrate sits and provides help in achieving a zero trust architecture. And then third, we actually sit over top and we provide a lot of those management features that you described. So we've talked a lot about the service mesh and the capabilities that it brings, but it, it tends to be specific to one cluster. And it's a control plane. It's a runtime thing, right? So in an organization, we need to weave together a consistent and a coherent service mesh across all the, the clusters, across all the sites that a, that a place is running. And you need to map that to your existing organizational structure, right? Who are your teams? Who are your users in your organization? And who's allowed to change what, right? Can the front-end team go and change the back-end team's mesh configuration? Hopefully not. That's the kind of management administration that we mean over top. And so that's where Tetrate Service Bridge, our product, sits as a layer on top of Istio, weaving together a whole bunch of different Istios that are deployed across a whole bunch of different sites within a single organization and providing that centralized management, visibility, audit logs, controls, that, that kind of piece. When you describe the sidecar, one of the important takeaways for me was that it's then at the networking level. So it's programming exactly. language, application independent. Do we have the same goals in rolling out zero trust policies? Uh, do I have to involve oh, yeah. developers or is it just at the networking level? So eventually you are going to have to involve developers, right? But there's a lot that we can roll out at the networking level. So to start with, we can get, you know, for example, encryption and transit everywhere as a baseline without having to change application code. We can get very clear metrics to be able to understand who is talking to whom in our system so that we can even start to figure out what a policy that we would write would even be, right? Bootstrapping a, a runtime authorization policy is very hard. Uh, and so being able to look at the system and see the observed traffic flow to be able to bootstrap that policy is incredibly helpful uh, as well. And so we, we see that as a, as a second kind of key piece. And when you do a deployment, is there a, are you like full service or is there a operator on your client's end who's going to be at the desk, uh, dashboard that you give them, that sort of thing? How does everything run? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of different ways. So we started off, I think I, you know, I mentioned we work with the DOD, we work with a large, a couple of large financial institutions, and they want a totally on-prem installation, right? Uh, and so what we have is kind of a, a system that's split into two parts that I that I kind of maybe alluded to, which is the first part is that the control planes, the issue of the service mesh runtime itself, and that gets deployed in every place that the customer has compute, right? So every cluster, they're going to have to stand up that. That then registers into that management piece, that central piece that I described. And that stood up once for on-prem customers that's going to be on-prem. For other folks, we actually host that as well. And so they don't actually have to do any stand-up. Basically, all that they do on their side is in the compute cluster where you're going to run the service mesh, you deploy an operator, a Kubernetes operator, and it deploys effectively just Istio. And then we have a, a second control plane piece that sits next to Istio that programs Istio by pushing Kubernetes CRDs to it. Uh, you know, so you can, you have this installed, you can go and do kubectl get service entries and see the materialized service entries that we're programming Istio with to do, for example, cross-cluster traffic failover. And you'd mentioned a lot of Fortune 2000 customers. Banking is an obvious industry that comes to mind, as well as uh, military and defense. How low does it get? Are there certain industries that even startups are interested in your products, or is this really an enterprise-grade solution? 
Yeah, definitely. So we, we've talked with a bunch of startups for us, you know, I think I, I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty hands-on thing to get a service mesh into an organization. So for us, that's not the primary place that we're spending our energy today. But I would say, you know, in general, those organizations that are looking at a service mesh, go for it, right? The service mesh itself is not inherently a, an enterprise or a large scale thing. Instead, I would say the service mesh, you should look at it on the axis of what is it's going to cost to implement these cross-cutting features? You know, what's it going to cost for me to implement MTLS everywhere in my system? What's it going to cost for me to get consistent metrics everywhere? That's the axis that you should use to evaluate service mesh costs or not. Uh, and then, hey, you want to come talk to Tetrate about doing that? Probably, unless you're a pretty large company, we're not going to be able to help you today. But there are certainly a bunch of resources that we can point you at and, and things like that to, to kind of aid you on the journey. I know your solution uh, supports multi-cloud systems. How common of a deployment is that? All the time. So especially when, when you're talking about large organizations, you have things like acquisitions that mean that you're spread across all the different infrastructure providers that, that exist, right? And especially when you're talking about, you know, large financial services companies, for example, a lot of them have acquisition-based models. So they have super heterogeneous infrastructure across a bunch of different organizations that they've acquired over the past, you know, 30 years. So that's one part of the reality, things like acquisition-driven infrastructure. A second key one is the idea of wanting to be multi-cloud. I would say that there's this false idea of wanting to be multi-cloud purely for portability, right? So you're never going to really win on compute arbitrage, right? So compute arbitrage, the idea that I'm going to like just migrate my workloads to wherever the compute is cheaper and run them there. That's not really the, the key driver for multi-cloud that we've seen in industry. And, and so again, like I said, first is, is acquisitions and, and that kind of thing. The second key use case is allowing different teams within the organization to consume cloud-specific capabilities for their domain, right? So maybe one of the clouds is differentiated on uh, AI and ML. Right, Maybe one of the other clouds is differentiated on the cost or development speed for Lambda or compute, you know, for things like functions as a service, that kind of, of stuff. Right, And so in the practical reality that we've seen in these large organizations is that they need to enable their development teams to consume the best in breed capabilities wherever it is that they run. And so it's not that one team is running across Azure and Google and AWS. Instead, what we see is that one organization has three teams, and one in the ML team is in uh, Google, right? And you know, one of the legacy teams is running in uh, Azure because they need some of the Windows Server uh, things, right? And some of the new, cooler, you know, younger parts of the organization are doing stuff over in AWS, right? This is a pretty common setup that we see, and of course, don't forget that the stuff that's actually making money is back in, on prem in the data center. Right. And so you have these kind of four different environments or, or more. And, and so it's pretty common that we see this divide across these environments. And so you need to bring consistency. You need to bring visibility. You need to bring control into those environments. And that's where the service mesh becomes very attractive, not just within one cloud, but cutting across and giving you that consistent control and visibility across all the infrastructure. Where do you see Tetrate five years out? taking over the world hopefully <laughs> no you know we hope that the i think in that time frame we'll see the service mesh become ubiquitous 
right. We certainly hope that as part of that, we'll have a, a very large rise as well, right? We want to, our, our goal is to deliver all the world's application traffic, right? It'll take, a, it'll take a lot longer than five years to get there. But we plan on in five years, you know, being really key, uh, a really key part of the runtime infrastructure and the runtime security of a lot of the different applications and a lot of the different companies that folks use day to day. Well, I guess to wrap up, are there any interesting technology challenges you're preparing for along that path? Oh, so many. There's a ton. We, you know, we could we could have probably you know an hour uh, just to to do a review of some of the technology challenges there, right? So, you know, just to give some of a taste, you know, how do you start to make sure that security policy is consistent across these different cloud providers, given that they have different security models? Right. The service mesh gives you some baseline to build on top of. You still need to do a lot of rationalization with the different models to build patterns to have, you know, the correct security posture as, as an organization that spans. Uh, so that's one area that there's both technical work as well as, you know, thought work that needs to be put into to how to do that. Things like actually distributing policy, you need to make policy decisions quickly and accurately at runtime with up to date information that becomes incredibly challenging as the environments that we are running in get more and more distributed. And as edge computing becomes more and more relevant, of course, edge means something different for everybody. Everybody's edge is somebody else's data center. But what we are seeing, right, is is information get pushed closer to users. And in that environment, it becomes challenging to do things like keep policy consistent, up to date, and accurate in enforcement. So that's one other area that there's a lot of technical challenges. You know, things like performance of the sidecar proxy for every use case is a big area, right? So today, for example, Envoy tends to add about two and a half milliseconds of latency at the 90th percentile. And if you just Google Istio performance, you'll see we actually have a dedicated page that gets updated every single release of Istio with performance testing uh, and evaluation there. So two and a half milliseconds for a large class of applications is nothing. If I told you, you know, hey, your developers don't have to write code that handles certificates, and they don't have to write a lot of the code to generate metrics, and all the traffic control stuff can be declarative, not in the application, and configuration-driven, and you only have to pay two and a half milliseconds of latency at runtime to do that, most people jump at that, right? That's a phenomenal trade-off. However, it's not the right trade-off for every set of applications for every team. Right. For example, that may or may not be an acceptable trade-off in front of a database. So one of the other kind of long-running technical challenges is that data plane, that that Envoy sidecar performance, and making sure that that is as performant as possible. You know, that's where folks like Intel are actively working with the Envoy community to help drive some of that performance optimization, for example. So that's maybe a third large area. There's a ton more that we can go into, but maybe that gives a little bit of a taste of some of the areas that, that there's still going to need to be you know, large amounts of technical work done. Absolutely. Where is the best place listeners can follow the project online? So the best place that, that folks can go check out Istio and Envoy online are in their respective communities, istio.io, Istio Mesh on Twitter, and on a lot of social medias. Go to the join the Slack or discuss.istio.io to be able to ask questions and, and interact with the community there. Envoy similarly has a, a large community, you know, envoyproxy.io to get you started there. It additionally has Slack and, and discussion channels and all to, to be able to dive in. And of course, both projects are on uh, GitHub 
as well as where they live. Uh, GitHub.com slash Istio, GitHub.com slash Envoy Proxy for those two respective code bases and projects and communities. And then finally, you know, Tetrate is at tetrate.io. Uh, you can email info at tetrate.io to talk with folks. Uh, you can email me at, at Zach at uh, tetrate.io, but that's with a CK. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun discussion.